It is great that you're here tonight. Thank you for coming. Uh, you know, we, usually we live stream at the four o'clock service, but we had some technical difficulties. So tonight we are live streaming at the six. So if you're watching online, uh, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Hi, Nan. It's, I hope you're enjoying your evening. Uh, but thank you guys all for, uh, for being here. You know, uh, a decade ago, I was a youth pastor. I was a youth pastor for a really long time. And uh, one afternoon, a phone call came into the church where they said, hey, uh, we need a pastor to come out and visit a student in the hospital. Uh, she is really sick, and she needs someone to visit her. Uh, and so since I worked with students, I was the one who was kind of designated to go. I was glad to go. But nothing really prepared me for walking into that hospital room for what I was about to see. Uh, this girl was 13 years old, and she was suffering from brain cancer, had a brain tumor, and had been in a coma for about, I think, it, just trying to recall it now, it's about six weeks, almost two months, that she had been down in a coma. And as a result of just being in a coma for so long, uh, she just showed all of the effects of that. Uh, pale, had lost a ton of weight, was in a completely uh, vegetative state. Uh, tubes, uh, every sort of elect uh, electronic attached to her to kind of gauge it. A room full of the sounds of machines keeping her alive. And there was her mom there who wanted me to pray for her. I was completely um, uh, in a, in a situation that was beyond anything I'd ever been in before. I'd been to hospitals, I'd prayed with people who were sick, but I'd never been with somebody this sick before. And it, it just, it, it flummoxed me in the moment. I, I didn't know how to fully be present. Uh, this mom was desperate for someone to bring any sort of hope. Medicine had only gone so far, and so the hope was prayer would work. And so I was there to do that. And I remember, uh, for, for no particular reason, in the moment, I just decided to reach out. And when I prayed for this girl to hold her hand while I prayed... And I prayed for her, uh, just a short, normal, God, be with this girl or bring your healing. Prayed for her, said amen. And when it's, I said amen, she squeezed my hand. From the depths of her coma, she reached out and squeezed my hand. And it caught me completely off guard, off guard and I gasped. And her mom said, what is it? And I said, uh, she squeezed my hand. And she said, wait, what? Just right now, she squeezed her hand. I was like, yes. When I said amen, she squeezed my hand. She said, hold on, doctor. Doctors come running in, nurses come in. She squeezed his hand. Was it a long squeeze, a short squeeze? You know, what do I mean? I was like, I, I don't know. I don't know. It was a squeeze. And all of a sudden, mom and doctors are pulled away, conferencing about what it means. They begin to up dosage. They begin to change everything. And I just kind of drift into the background, trying to process what had just happened. Two months later, that girl walked into my youth ministry, uh, totally past the effects of that cancer and healthy in that moment. Uh, it was the most, uh, watch this, it was the closest encounter I've had with supernatural healing uh, in my entire life. It was the sort of thing that felt like it was straight out of the pages of the Bible. I was absolutely shocked by it. And it, it's marked me still to this day. I still think about it. It's so powerful for me when I tell that story. Uh, now, uh, about a year ago, I was out running. And while I was running, I, I was kind of mile three or mile four. Uh, and while I was running, all of a sudden I felt the sharp pain in my foot. And I decided, ah, that's uncomfortable. I'm just going to keep running. And I kept running. And when I got back that night, boy, I just could not walk at all. The next day, I was even worse. I'm eating Advil like they're chiclets. I am absolutely icing. I'm dragging my leg like Quasimodo. 
Uh, and eventually it's so bad that I go to the doctor. They take x-rays. They say, there's nothing wrong with you. You're a baby. I go back, complain. Three months later, I go see another doctor. They take more x-rays. They say, there's nothing wrong with you. I'm super frustrated. Three months later, I see another doctor. They still don't know what's wrong with me. It was only last week where I looked at Melinda and said, I think I need to pray about this. Like, I'm a pastor. This is literally what we do. All I do is pray for people all the time. But for me, it's made more sense to go see three doctors and take endless x-rays than pray about it because it just slipped through the cracks. I just never really crossed my mind that that is exactly what I should do. And I find most of us kind of understand the tension of these two things, that that we believe that God can miraculously work and that he does work. We believe that God is a healer, and yet sometimes we just never even go to him for that sort of prayer. We never take it to him, and we live in the tension of both belief and also inaction, or belief and unbelief. And sometimes we don't even understand what's happening in our hearts about why we're such a mixture of both faith and a lack of faith. And we struggle sometimes and become frustrated with ourselves about why we are who we are. Sometimes it almost feels like we flip a coin to decide whether or not we're going to believe or not. And so we struggle in this way. You know, we are doing a sermon series out of the book of Acts, and we're moving now into what I'm kind of calling the second chapter of Acts, not into Acts chapter 2, but if you think of Acts in terms of a story, we've just finished chapter 1, the birth of the church. The Spirit comes and it begins to evangelize, and people are coming to faith. Where we're moving into now, chapter 2, is going to be an era of struggle for the church, where they're going to face trials, they're going to face spiritual attack. They're going to face division amongst their own ranks, and they're going to face increased pressure from the government. They are truly going to struggle. And where we're going to be tonight is a part of a three kind of sermon arc involving, revolving all around one healing of a man at the temple and the fallout that comes from that. What I'm hoping that you see tonight as we kind of do this is to explore exactly how God chooses to heal sometimes. And how he is a healer and has a heart to heal. And also to look at God's heart for those who suffer. About how he puts attention on us when we suffer. And he desires to end that sort of struggle that we face. But more than that, we just want to enter into kind of a theology of God. About who he is and how he interacts with us and where his heart is towards us. Through the highs and the lows of life. Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 3, and we're going to actually go through verse 21. 1 verse 21. I want to tell you right now kind of where we're headed. Where we're going to conclude this evening is by actually praying for those who are sick in the room for God to bring his physical healing to you. And so, if you have an ailing pain or something that's been lingering with you for a while or a challenging diagnosis, I want it for you to get ready kind of mentally for where we're going to go because I want to give God a chance to move tonight in the way that he actually uh, does in the scripture and says that he wants to do anyway. So I'm not going to ask you to stand for these this verses. There's a lot. But turn in your Bibles to Acts 3. If you're going to use the Pew Bible, and I would encourage you to do so, we're going to start on page 1079. So let me read. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. No, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. And Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. And then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, 
But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. And then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. Kind of uh, pay attention to that phrase, the author of life. We're going to come back to it. But God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, the man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as, all, as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all of the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. We're going to come back to that too. And that you may send the Messiah who's been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. This is God's word for us tonight. The scene of the story is a familiar one. If, if you've kind of been around church, you know what we're talking about. It takes place in the Jewish temple. Now, the Jewish temple was not just a regular temple where they worshiped Yahweh. God actually dwelt there, put his presence into this physical building. And so the temple became the center of the Jewish life. More than that, if we believe that Yahweh, the God of all things, dwells inside the temple, then not only is it the center of Jewish life, it's the center of the entire universe. Everything revolves there around this building. It is incredibly important. As a result, the Jewish people it were constantly coming into contact with the temple to organize their faith. Uh, it was a place of ritual. Uh, the average Jew would have traveled there probably about three times a year for the different festivals. Uh, it was a place of worship. There they would offer sacrifices and they would be cleansed from their sins. And uniquely, it's also a place of boundaries. The temple is made of all of these different kind of courtyards. And based on who you are in society, determined how deep into the courtyards you could pass. Uh, if you were a Gentile, you could go uh, into the first courtyard. If you're a woman, you could go to the second. If you're a Jewish man, you could go to the third. If you're a priest, you could go inside the temple. And if you were ultimately one of the priests selected, you could go into the Holy of Holies where God dwelled once a year. So there's all these boundary markers and kind of sequentially ordered around it. Now, in the temple, there's a man who's paralyzed. And he is there, it says, every single day. When you get later in the book of Acts, in Acts 4.22, it tells us that the man is over 40 years old and that he has been lame since birth. So this man has never walked. Never stood. It was not a disease or an accident that took his legs away. He was born without the ability to walk. And if you were trying to mentally imagine what he looks like, imagine somebody with severely atrophied legs. 
Somebody who is completely incapable of walking because he's never walked. And every day, he sits outside of these temple courts. Every day, he is out there begging. Now, it says that he's at the temple outside of the gates, beautiful. Chances are the temple gates beautiful is on the very farthest ring of the temple, near the outermost courts. The reason why this is important is because since he is an invalid, since he's injured, since he's handicapped, he's not allowed to go any further. He has to stay on the farthest outsides of the temple because he might actually, uh, in some ways, uh, uh, cause the place to be unclean if he were actually to go in. And so he's on the outside. Now, if you look at the beginning of verse 3, from verse 1 into verse 6, there's something interesting that happens in the passage around the word or the idea of sight. Time and time again, we're going to see seeing, saw, sight, the command to look. It's a word that gets used again and again. Let me kind of show you how it plays out. Imagine the monotony that this guy lives in. For decades, he has been outside of the temple gates begging. Every day is the same. He could not leave if he wanted to. Nothing ever changes about his life. He is worthy of pity. I mean, he has an incredibly challenging life. But also think about what it does to you if you have to try to take the pity that people have for you and monetize it into begging. What does that do to your own sense of self and your own sense of identity and your own self-confidence? Doing that every day, begging for someone to give you whatever they have left over. When you imagine this man, again, you should imagine him as being, having kind of what I would call a thousand yard stare. Looking, but not seeing out of the boredom and the shame and the monotony of everyday life. And when Peter and John walk up, it says that he sees them. But apparently he doesn't really see them because the next thing that happens is we hear about Peter and John and them seeing him. Now we know that they have been going to the temple courts every day worshiping. So they have walked past this man time and time again. They have seen him, but apparently they have not really seen them. What says in verse 4 that Peter, when he sees him this time, that he looks straight at the man. So what's the difference between seeing him in the past and this time looking straight at him? I think the best way for us to understand it is that every other time they had walked into the temple, they saw this man with their own eyes. But this time when they walk in, for some reason, the spirit stirs and they see him with the eyes of Jesus. And when they see him with the eyes of Jesus, their hearts are moved with compassion and the spirit moves to them to be able to actually act on that compassion and do something for him. They see him. And for the first time, they really see him. I think this is actually one of the things that we need to know the most when we suffer. One of the questions that we have when we're deep in the midst of our own suffering, when we're in pain, when things are not going right, when we cannot see an end to it all, is we just want to know, God, do you know? God, are you aware? God, do you see my pain? And here we find out, first and foremost, that that God does. That God does see it. You know, in college, I lived with a guy who was handicapped. He was born as well with a brain tumor, but it was inoperable and it wasn't going to kill him. But it handicapped him for life. I've shared stories about him in the past. Uh, he had, was unable to bend his elbows or his knees due to the tumor. And he had been like that for, since he was like four years old. And there was no chance it was going to change. 
and yet he deeply believed that God wanted uh, to heal him. And he was constantly going to people asking for God to, for them to pray that he would be healed. And he would always come back with dates. It's going to be July 1st. It's going to be December 15th. It's going to be February 11th. He always had a new date. And the date would come and it would pass and he'd be the same. And the way he would think about it afterwards, devastated was that apparently I did not believe enough. Because God is one who, if we have a faith like a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain to go into the sea and it'll be done. And he believed that was true with God. His faith in God never changed, but his confidence himself was what actually got hit so hard. And he just came to believe that I am the problem. If I had more faith, then God would move. What's fascinating in this story is that there is no account of this man who sits by the gate having any faith whatsoever. He does not call out to them, believing that he can be saved. Healing is not on his mind. The only thing he wants is money. The only thing he wants is alms. That is all he thinks. And for some reason, the Spirit stirs inside of Peter and John for his own reason and for his own pleasure. And in that moment, there is a gift of grace that is given to a man that is outside of any sort of formula that we might have. God simply chooses to do it for his own goodwill and for his own good purposes. And the reason why I think God chooses to do this, why the spirit of Jesus present there with him chooses to do it, is because he does see those who suffer. And he does care about those who suffer. And when we look at the ministry of Jesus, we find him always being willing to be interrupted by those who suffer. He does it again and again and again. In Luke chapter 4, he is preaching a sermon when a paralytic is lowered through the roof of a building so he could be healed by him. And Jesus stops everything he's doing to go and speak to the man. Uh, We have the story about blind Bartimaeus where Jesus is traveling on the road. And Bartimaeus is screaming on the side of the road. And Jesus stops and detours to go speak with Bartimaeus and heal him before continuing on his journey. We have another story of Jesus on his way to heal, uh, I believe it was a centurion's servant or his child. And along the way, a woman reaches out and touches him. And it says the power goes out of Jesus and heals her. And Jesus stops and listens to the woman and says he listens to her whole story. In that, because he cares so much about her life. We have, after the transfiguration, he is coming down off of the mountain. Everything has, there's been this huge spiritual moment. And a guy runs up to him with a sick son. And he stops and ministers to that boy. You see, Jesus is incredibly interruptible by those who suffer. Because he deeply cares. And it is because he sees. You know, you and I, we get very used to a world that is full of suffering. We don't think twice when if we see someone with a cane or a wheelchair. We don't blink if we see somebody with a hearing aid. Uh, we are used to seeing somebody whose head has gone bald from chemotherapy and from cancer treatment. We see this kind of suffering all the time, and we can almost go right past it without looking because it's so prevalent everywhere we go. Pain and suffering is what we know of in this world. It's going to touch all of our lives at some point. This world is defined by pain and suffering, but it wasn't always. It was once perfect. It was once without sickness. It was once without disease. And so although you and I might become very familiar with suffering, Jesus has never gotten used to it. Because the world that he created was one that was perfect, where we walked in relationship with him, and where miracles were the day-to-day occurrence of the world. They weren't supernatural then. They were just natural. 
The world worked in supernatural ways because God's presence filled everything. It is only after sin came into the world that the supernatural became rare. And so we look at sickness and we are used to it, but Jesus looks at it and Jesus always wants to do something about it. His heart is always towards those who suffer because he knows what you were supposed to be and what this world was supposed to be like and he is unsatisfied with it and he's committed to changing it. And in the moment, in fact, he empowers Peter and John to do what he wants to do. That whenever Jesus sees suffering or rejection or humiliation, he wants to change that situation for them. And he wants to restore them back to what they were. In fact, I think it's fascinating. In his heart to end suffering for us, Jesus himself is willing to undergo suffering and humiliation and rejection. So that you and I would no longer have to. And when Peter and John take this man's hand, what's fascinating is not only is he healed, the man is actually transformed. Luke is a doctor, um, as we find out in some of the other epistles. And what's fascinating about, about it is that he actually tells us quite a bit about what's happening to the man when he's healed. He says his legs were made strong, his feet were made strong, he stood up, he walked, he jumped. Uh, but if you really think about it, so much more is happening in this man's body for him to go from never walking to jumping. I mean, certainly the muscles need to be made strong, but the ligaments do as well. The ligaments which are going to connect everything together. And not only do the muscles and the ligaments need to be made strong, but there's nerves that have never fired, which now need to come alive to send signal to the brain. And there have to be pathways that are created to the brain so that the muscles can begin to move. And the brain needs to be transformed as well so that it can receive them, it can put it into action. And his mind has to be changed so that he could actually believe and take that step of faith to actually do it. And his hips need to be rebuilt and his spine needs to be strengthened. You see, the man doesn't just simply get strong ankles and feet. His entire body is remade in a moment due to this powerful word of Jesus through them. The man undergoes a complete metamorphosis. And it's not just his body that changes. In fact, it's everything about his story that changes as well. Think about it. In this miraculous moment, his present changes. He not only stands, we're told that he walks. We're told on two different occasions that he jumps. Apparently, that is one of the things that really drew the author, uh, Luke, when he saw it. This is not a weak, tottering old man who's taking a small first step. This is not a child who's learning to walk, who's tripping over himself. This man, from the moment he's healed, is active. He is running, jumping, dancing, playing due to the work of God in his life. And as a result of this change in his life, 40 years of dependence is over. And he suddenly has a new life of autonomy. And he could ask the question, what does he really want to do? Because he can control his legs, he now can control his life. And because he can control his present, that means his future changes. One thing he knows, he is never going to that spot again at the temple. That's what he knows he's not going to do tomorrow. But anything else he wants to do is on the table. Does he want to go back home? Does he want to go get a job? Does he want to get married? Does he want to go travel? Whatever he wants to do, he can do. His future has opened him. Where before, the only thing that he knew was that the next day he was going to be there in that spot. Now it is totally open. It is a story to be written. And he has no idea, but he can choose the path, the pathway that he wants to go. And it's not just his present and his future that changes. One of the things I think is really interesting 
and I just want to think about it more, is how even his own understanding of the past changes. I mean, in the way he looked at the past, everything backwards of his life had been full of pain and sorrow and grief. You can imagine that he might have said things like, I wish I'd never been born. I don't know why God hates me. I don't know what I did or my ancestors did that caused me to deserve this. I'm not a bad person. You could imagine that that's the way he looked at his past. But how does the way that he thinks about his past change once his future changes? Once God changes his life right now and his future becomes new, when he looks at the past, it's no longer an open-ended sort of story of suffering, but now it is a chapter. It is, I once was broken. I once was lame. I once was unable to walk, but now I'm not any longer. There becomes this transition. So the way he even thinks about his past changes due to the healing and the grace of God. And it's not just that his body changes or that his future or present or past changes. The way he even understands God changes as well too. For his entire life, he had been forced to stay at a distance from God. He had been unable to actually approach God and to come near him in the temple. And since he could not go near him, what did God do? He did the very same thing that he did in sending his son Jesus to us. Since he could not go in, Jesus came out. And Jesus come and, and meets him and brings him his grace. And not only will he now walk for the rest of his life, he will now walk with Jesus for the rest of his life because Jesus will be with him in heart and soul and spirit. I think it's important because it reminds us that there is not a story in our lives that God cannot tear up, remake, or rewrite. It doesn't matter what you've suffered. It doesn't matter the diagnosis you have. It doesn't matter what you've done or what you have not done. It doesn't matter if you've been paralyzed. It could change in a moment. You might have blown up your life, insulted the earth of your relationships, and God can still transform your mistakes into something, into meaning. He can still turn your mourning into dancing, is the way the scripture says. That he could change anything about your story, regardless of what's happened to you, or what you have done to it yourself. Now when people see this paralyzed man, who they knew, jumping and dancing, they begin to gather, and Peter begins to preach. And and I'm just going to cover the sermon really briefly as it relates to the healing. Uh, There's a lot there, and it's beautiful. Uh, But there's something fascinating in there, because he says in verse 15, that Jesus is the author of life. Remember, I drew your attention to that. That Jesus is the author of life. He says, but you killed him. And we killed him. That every one of us is guilty of killing the author of life. That Jesus is the means by which all things came to be. That when God spoke things into existence in the book of Genesis, he did so through the divine word, the logos, Jesus Christ. That he is the one who has authored all of creation. And yet we killed him. And yet God in his greatness would not allow the author of life to stay dead. And so God has raised him. And Jesus now continues to author a story of life for anybody who's going to choose to believe. That he can write a life into your life. Simply because that is exactly what he does. That he is one who is always writing life into where we sow death. He's always bringing life and bringing resurrection power again and again into his life. And this miracle that they saw, it wasn't them, they told him. It is Jesus alive putting his power through the disciples. 
And this is not a one-time occurrence. What we're going to see happen is that the power that Jesus had to perform miracles is going to be alive and well in the disciples throughout the rest of the book of Acts. And more than that, we're told that it is a present power that is available for you and I today through the power of the Spirit in us. There are some Christians out there who believe that these sorts of gifts of miracles that we see in the Bible were something for an era. They were something for a time. They happen in missionary movements where people don't come to faith, but they're not something for us presently today. Uh, that sort of theology, theological framework are called cessationists. They believe that the gifts of the Spirit have ceased to be present in the church today, although they once were. And I just have to tell you, in my own reading of the scripture and what you're going to hear preached here at Coastline, that is not what we believe. Because we believe that what the scriptures teach is that those gifts are still present here today in the life of the church. Jesus says in John 14, 12, as he's getting ready to go uh, to the cross, he is preparing his disciples for what is to come. He tells them that anyone who believes in me will do what I do. And more than that, they will do greater things than I have done. He says, look, if you've been impressed with my miracles, there is a better chapter coming. There's a new era coming, and you will do greater things than what you've seen. Not that they're going to end. Not that the era is going to come to a close. He says, no, it's actually going to unfold more. There is more coming now due to the power of the Spirit, not less. Uh, in regards to prophecy and prophetic words, 1 Thessalonians 5.20 says that we are not to treat prophecy with contempt. That to this day, there's going to be words given to the church, and when they're given, we should receive them with thought, with care, with, with analysis, with discernment, but receive it nonetheless, not to treat it as if that no longer happens. In James 5, 14, we're told that if you're sick, you're to call the elders, and the prayer that is offered in faith will make the sick person well. So these gifts are things that we have instruction on. We are told that they still continue to this day, and we are told how to practice it. That the miraculous is still alive for the church today. But miracles simply aren't about seeing somebody receive a gift of healing. There is more to it than that. In verse 21, it says this, that heaven must receive Jesus until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his Holy Spirits. What he's saying there is a miracle, is a brief, like, teaser of what is ultimately to come. He says what is to come is the restoration of all things. A day is going to come where every sickness will be undone and every trauma will be healed and every scar will be removed. That there is a day that's going to come when sickness simply will stop existing. And that day will happen when Jesus Christ returns. And a miracle is meant to draw our attention to that day coming. That one person is healed in a miracle, but it is meant to inspire a crowd that a day is coming when the kingdom will be completely unfolded and this will be the case for all of us. Now this is important because there are lots of people here in this room who are wounded emotionally, uh, physically, who are handicapped uh, physically, maybe even emotionally. There's people who are as wounded as much as this paralytic. There are people who are, who are trapped inside 
uh, patterns of depression or anxiety, people who have diagnoses which are challenging and don't look like it's going to give them a long, healthy future. We have people who will find their personality are being changed by constant pain. We have people here who know full well what's going to kill them just simply by looking at the pattern of how people in their family have died. That there's people who've had cancer, there's people who've had other sorts of diseases, and they know it's only a matter of time before they go see a doctor and they say, you have that. And with that comes an incredible amount of fear and pain and a desire for healing. The good news is that Jesus loves to heal. And yet the other part that we need to hold on to is that as desperate as we are for healing, it is ultimately not our supreme need. There is something that we need beyond that. In Luke chapter 4, I already referenced this once. When the paralytic is descended through the roof to Jesus, when his teaching is interrupted by uh, this man being lowered by his friends, Jesus looks at the man and says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now the man is there to get healed. He's not there to get his sins forgiven. You can imagine him leaning over the mat going, that's not what I want. I want my legs to work. Because in his world, his legs are the problem. Him not being able to walk are the biggest hindrance to him living a truly joyful life. And if he thinks, and you can imagine him thinking, if I could just walk, well then I would fuck. There's plenty of people who can walk who are unhappy. You see, even if we receive the healing that we want, there's no guarantee that's going to make our lives work perfectly. In fact, what the scripture seems to say here is that what we want, or what I should say, the joy that we hope, that we seem to hope for that a healing is going to bring, it actually comes from a different source. Look at verse 19. He says this, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away and so that a time of refreshing might come. He says the refreshment that you want that feeling of your soul finally being at rest, that peace that you imagine, it isn't found from a physical healing, where it is found in knowing that Jesus Christ loves you and has taken your sins away from you and has drawn you into a relationship with him. That's what he says. He says, take your sins to him. Literally, give your sins to Jesus. Repent of them. And he says, you give Jesus your sins. And what will he give you? He will give you his refreshing of knowing that you are in a relationship and loved by him. What is truly wrong with us is not, a, is not a disease. It is the sin inside of us. And the refreshment that we want is the release and the forgiveness from that sin. Keller says this again, that one ounce of sin will kill us faster than one ton of suffering. So ultimately... Suffering, if you suffer victoriously, then you can end your suffering. You can die and go immediately into the presence of God victorious and healed by him. With that great thing that you always long for. And yet he says, if you die with your sins, you are in a hopeless situation, separated from God. He says that sin makes us self-centered, self-absorbed. It destroys our relationship with God. It destroys our relationship with others. It destroys even the way that we see ourselves. If you die in your suffering, you can end up victorious. If you die in your sins, you die in body and soul. And this is what Jesus came to save us from. Look, the day is going to come where every one of us is going to have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And the peace we have is knowing that God walks with us. And he walks with us because he's already gone through death. 
that he's already come out victorious. And he promises to walk us through our suffering, through that same place, through that same valley, and to bring us out victorious on the other side. And yet he also loves to heal. And he has the ability to pull us out of that valley of the shadow of death and to make us healthy and right again. And the challenge is sometimes is trying to discern why does God choose to do what he does? Why does somebody get the miracle and why does somebody um, get the tombstone? And it's in that tension that we just live every day. And I'm not sure if there's an answer I can give you that's going to be satisfactory um, other than to remind you that you are loved and we are told to pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's a mysterious one. But rather than simply living in the tension of mystery and giving up, what we want to do tonight is, again, build our lives upon the premise of the teaching, upon the premise of the scripture. God loves to heal, and he sees us in our suffering. And he says that he can heal. And so tonight, we're going to give him a chance to do that. And I have no idea what happens next. Um, But my hope is that God really profoundly meets you and does something that changes you. And so the way it's going to work is this. I'm going to invite Michael and the band up. They're going to lead us through two or three songs. And we're going to have some of our prayer partners kind of scattered to the sides here. And if you are struggling physically, if there's a physical pain or if you have a diagnosis or if there's some challenge that you're facing, I want to urge you to go for prayer. If there is some sort of pattern of thinking or some mental struggle or anxiety or depression, I want to encourage you to go to the sides and receive prayer. And together we'll go before the Lord knowing that he loves us and knowing that he can heal and we'll make that appeal together for him to change your situation and to change your life and to draw you close to him. Because ultimately the hope is not just for the gift but for the gift giver. It's to know him as well. So let me pray. Lord, at times, God, uh, it's really hard to go to the sides and get prayer. Uh, None of us like to look like we don't have it all together. But Lord, physical pain is something that, um, and physical suffering is something that we all will go through. And so, Lord, the threshold for embarrassment tonight doesn't exist. And so, Lord, for those who hurt, for those who are in pain, Lord, give them the courage to go receive prayer. And Father, we want to ask that you would come and heal and that you would draw near and that you would restore. And Lord, we love you. And we thank you, Lord, that you love us. Lord, tonight we want to pray that you would change some people's uh, situations, change their story. Um, And Lord, we come to you in faith and we ask of this humbly and with gratitude. We pray this in the name of